Let us now turn for our scripture reading to the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter. John 15, and we'll read the first 17 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered, and they gather them, and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. It shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Let us also turn our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 24. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 23 has uh, already made clear that our righteousness before God cannot be found in ourselves. It cannot be found in our own goodness it cannot be our own obedience or even our faith. Uh, and it is no exaggeration to confess that we have kept none of God's commandments, we've broken all of them, and that we are still inclined uh, to all evil. And what that means then is that our keeping uh, the commandments of God as Christians, and Christians do keep the commandments of God, but to understand that language of scripture that describes Christians as keeping the commandments of God must be understood as evangelical obedience, as it's sometimes uh, been described, 
that it is, it is an obedience that is sincere in its intention and desire and aim to keep the commandments of God. And it is, uh, obedience that is grateful in its motivation. It is not, uh, a matter of seeking to earn God's favor by such obedience. And then furthermore, such sincere obedience, such obedience that proceeds from uh, faith and gratitude is yet itself imperfect, always imperfect, all imperfect in its execution. However sincere our intentions are, we find that when we would do good, evil is yet present with us. And so our good works and our commandment keeping, though genuine, no though motivated by love and gratitude, is yet imperfect. And that includes our best works in this life. That includes the best sermon a preacher could preach, the most earnest prayers that a saint could pray, the most generous giving that anyone could give, the hardest kind of self-denial, the most patient suffering, and on and on. However we might describe the best works that anyone could ever perform in this life. What are your best works? might be worth reflecting upon a little bit so that you can utterly repudiate them as having any value towards your justification and acceptance with God. They do not serve such a purpose. David prayed, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. And such a prayer involves the acknowledgement that we hardly know ourselves and the depths of our, our waywardness and the many ways in which we fall short of God's glory. It involves the acknowledgement that there are, that there are hidden faults that might characterize our lives. Even sins that we're quite oblivious to even though maybe others can notice them. Or though we might be aware of them, we hardly take them as seriously as we ought to take them. Each one of us should be horrified at the thought of trusting in our own righteousness before God. Each one of us should be horrified at the thought of appearing before God with nothing to present to Him but the very best things that we have ever done in our lives. To say nothing of our countless sins and failings. In John 15, Jesus calls his disciples to abide in him, to remain in him, to, to live in him, to dwell in this personal relationship of union with the Savior that they have by grace. And to this command, to this summons, he uh, attaches, he joins these rich promises, promises of fruitfulness, promises of fellowship, promises of answered prayer, promises of joy, but none of these things involve some program to gain righteousness before God. In fact, if we pay, pay careful attention to this chapter, even though it's presented in a very cryptic way, in fact, we must understand that this matter has already been settled. In verse 3, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He is speaking to them as justified sinners, as those who have been cleansed by the washing of water through the word. They have heard the word of grace. 
And their hearts have been purified by faith, to use the language of another passage of Scripture. They heard that word and they had faith in that gospel through which God washed them from their sins. And this exhortation, even to live out that Christian life in union with Jesus, is grounded in the assurance of their cleansing. Very important to remember, isn't it? And even in the instruction of our children, as we call our children to live as believers, and we direct their faith constantly to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we remind them that they not only have the promises of the forgiveness of their sins, but they have this covenant testimony and seal of God's grace that's been signified in their baptism so that they may learn to take comfort in their baptism and find in that a stimulation to cling to God and to trust in Him and to love Him because of God's gracious initiation. Even as infants, the sign of God's cleansing grace sprinkled upon them, combined with these assurances, so that they might know and understand that indeed their Christian life begins and proceeds always on the basis of God's work, God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace alone brought brought these disciples into union with Jesus. And by grace they are to live out this union in a pathway of faith, in a pathway of fruitfulness and fellowship and union with the Savior. Those who are in Christ do good works by grace. That's our theme uh, from this Lord's Day this evening. Those who are in Christ do good works by grace. And we want to consider the fact that good works are accepted. They're accepted by God in Christ. You know, these questions, the questions of this Lord's Day, they really... Uh, they, they assume a very important biblical, biblical truth. A truth that is behind all of these questions. And that truth may be stated very simply like this. Good works are good. Good works are good. In fact, you will never find that phrase, good works, in Scripture presented in a negative way. You will never find the word good works in Scripture, in a context that suggests that good works are to be rejected and they're of no value, they're of no worth. That's not the way the Bible uses this terminology of good works. In fact, only Christians do good works. That's one of the reasons why no one can be saved by good works, because no one who is saved can do any good works. Because good works, biblically defined, they proceed from faith. And they're done for the glory of God, according to God's law. Unbelievers don't have faith. Unbelievers can't glorify God. They're not interested or able to keep God's commandments whatsoever. Only Christians can do good works. And good works are good because good works show likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And good works glorify God. Let them see your good works so that they might glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus says. Good works bless others. Good works are good. And you see, that's a biblical assumption that's behind these questions. Well, why can't they then be our righteousness before God? Or even part of our righteousness? Well, we might answer that question very simply this way, 
that's not what they're for. That's not the purpose that good works serve in Scripture. And it's impossible that they should serve such a purpose. That's not what they're for. Something can be very, very good, but that doesn't mean that it's useful for everything. Gold is good. The psalmist uses gold to compare the preciousness and the value of God's word. Although God's word is more precious than gold, than fine gold. But fine gold is a beautiful gift of God embedded in the very creation to use for, to be used for his glory. Gold can be used to, to feed many poor. Gold could be used to build churches and schools and hospitals. Gold is good. But if you had a gold brick and you're walking along a pier and suddenly you see in the water someone drowning, would you throw him your brick of gold? It's utterly worthless for such a purpose. And if he would mistakenly grab it, thinking it could be a lifesaver, he would immediately get rid of it because it is utterly worthless to save him from drowning. He would do just the opposite. And anyone who would trust in good works for their righteousness before God as the ground of their acceptance with Him are more foolish than a drowning man clinging to gold. Utterly worthless to serve such a purpose. Yes, good works are accepted by God, but not because of their perfection. We've already considered, and our catechism reiterates, that our best works are stained with sin. And thus, they cannot be the basis of acceptance in the sight of a just and holy God who will not compromise His standard as the ground of being righteous in His sight. Because one stain spoils it all as a ground of acceptance. So good works are accepted by God, but not for the purpose of justification, and certainly not because of any imagined perfection that they might have. They have no such perfection. But then we might ask the question, well then, how can God accept anything less than perfection? And the answer to that is a very gracious answer, and very simply, we might say, for Jesus' sake, because we are accepted in the Beloved. Our persons are accepted in the sight of God as righteous in Christ. He is our righteousness before God. Our works do not serve that purpose. And because they don't serve that purpose, they don't have to measure up to that standard in order to be accepted. Because they're not accepted for their perfection, but they're accepted in Christ despite their failings because God accepts our person in His Son, and His absolute perfect righteousness stands in the stead, in the place of all our imperfect righteousness. So God accepts good works. He's, he's even pleased with them. That's the language of Scripture. As works of His grace in Christ. Good works, understood according to Scripture, are actually themselves the outworking of God's inworking. Think of Philippians 2, verse 12 that uh, teaches us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, take this Christian calling seriously, but then we're given the assurance and the comfort. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Yes, God is working in his saints so that they do what pleases him. They desire it, they choose it, they, they perform it as a result of his grace at work within them. Good works are spiritual sacrifices. They are accepted 
through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think of that exhortation in the book of Romans that follows the exposition of justification by faith alone. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service, acceptable to God. The presentation of our bodies as living sacrifices, not because those sacrifices are absolutely perfect, no, far from it. They're accepted for Jesus' sake. Peter describes the Christian calling in this way. You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices of giving, you know the Bible describes uh, giving as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, the sacrifice of worship and praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, the sacrifice of our daily work done for Jesus' sake, whatever we might do along this pathway of Christian living is acceptable not because of its perfection, but for Jesus' sake as the outworking of God's grace within. Yes, God accepts the good works of Christians in Christ despite their imperfection and stains. Because they do not serve as our righteousness before God. That's not what they're for, but they're for other purposes. Secondly, good works are produced through Christ. Uh, They are the fruits of gratitude. That's the language that the Catechism uses in answer 64. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Now, this is not a change of subject, right? This Catechism is talking about good works. But suddenly, answer 64 speaks of fruits of gratitude. And that implies that fruits of gratitude are another way of describing good works. And what's also significant is that it's in this connection that our catechism uh, refers to John chapter 15, verse, verse 5, where we read, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Understanding the uh, the relationship between good fruits and good works, we could say, he who abides in me and I in him does many good works, does much good works. Because that's what they're talking about, right? But the language makes abundantly clear that they are the result of union with Christ. And that result is very, very, uh, very close and it's an organic. In other words, there's a living connection between the Lord Jesus and fruit bearing. He compares it to uh, the union of a branch to a vine. You see, a branch derives all its nutrients, all its moisture, all its uh, ability to produce fruit, not of itself but from the vine to which it is joined and united in a living relationship. It's through union with Christ and partaking of His Spirit that we're enabled to do anything good. In that connection, it's also very important to see that gratitude is not simply the motivation for good works. As if, yes, we're thankful for salvation and therefore we do good works. No, Good works are the the outflow of this relationship to the Savior. And in that connection, 
gratitude is even the result, the growing result of good works. There's this wonderful example of this that I, I hope can help uh, illustrate what I'm what I'm referring to here. It's in the context of the gathering of material for the construction of the temple. And uh, David lavished out of his riches of gold and silver and great abundance. And the people then gave of their uh, gold and their silver, bronze, and all these precious stones. They gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. And then it says, Then the people rejoiced because they offered willingly. Because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And David rejoiced greatly. Why? Why did they rejoice? Because they were puffed up with pride at their generosity? Because they took great credit for their goodness? No, we have the answer to that in verse 13 and 14 where David leads him in prayer. It says, Now therefore our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this for all things come from you? You see, the joy of Christian living is the joy of knowing the grace of God that is also exhibited in the lives of Christians. So good works magnify grace. It's grace upon grace that glorifies God. Good works are produced through Christ, and to Him belongs the glory and the praise. Now, another thing that this uh, passage in John teaches, as well as other places in Scripture, is the fact that believers, they, they certainly will uh, bear fruit, to use the language of John 15. We could also say, uh, believers will certainly do good works. In, in fact, it's impossible that it should be otherwise. It is impossible, as we heard in answer 64, for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. It's unthinkable that there should be such a living union with the Savior and it has no effects upon living. A branch that doesn't bear fruit is taken away. That's what we read in verse in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? Because he says every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So, does that mean that there can be a real union with Christ that proves to be fruitless? Well, again, this is one of those uh, little details of Scripture that really require a kind of covenantal understanding of God's way with His people. And there is a kind of covenantal union with Christ. It's such a joyful occasion to administer baptism to a covenant child. It happens occasionally that in the course of administering baptism and in reading those wonderful words, that I have some of the same thoughts that some of you parents may have in reading that form. And you think of your children who are brought to this baptismal font and heard these rich promises of God's covenant grace and faithfulness. Indeed, those promises are something you are going to continue to plead and pray for God's mercy. But the fact is that some of those children that have been baptized and have heard those promises and have been taught the riches of God's word, they're not clinging to God. They don't seem to appreciate those promises. 
you know, seem to trust in him and love him. And we pray that indeed God in his mercy would bring them to himself. But it also confronts us with the reality that there is a kind of covenantal union and privilege that was characteristic of God's people throughout Scripture that does not involve a saving, vital union with Jesus Christ by faith. And the evidence of that is a lack of fruit, demonstrating a lack of faith, a lack of true saving union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel of free acceptance in Christ will exert a sanctifying power in the lives of God's children. The power of the gospel of free acceptance in Christ is not something that will just be idle and ineffective and unfruitful in the lives of true Christians. Because their union with Jesus Christ is not simply in name only. It's not simply that they are called Christians, but they are partakers of Christ by faith. And his spirit indwells them and they will produce fruit. Believers will certainly produce fruit. Believers must endeavor to produce fruit. Believers must endeavor to live in this union with Jesus Christ. Abide in me. That's a command, isn't it? It's repeated again and again to Jesus' disciples. A command in which he is exhorting them to live in this union, to live it out. Without me, you can do nothing. Remember that, because if you forget it, it's going to affect your fruitfulness. It's going to affect your living. And that's true of Christians. And we are reminded in this exhortation to to cling to Jesus Christ intentionally, deliberately. See, here's a difference uh, between a branch and a vine. A branch that's united to the vine, it will produce fruit. Not with any intention or purpose, right? The vine is a dead thing. It just happens kind of naturally. But there's the difference between Christians in relationship to their Savior. And so when Jesus says, abide in me, he is saying, draw from me your strength. Live by prayer. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Cherish my words in your hearts. Jesus draws a very close connection between these things. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Very, very helpful relationship here. Abiding in Christ, it can sound kind of mystical. What does it mean? How do we do that? Well, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Feed on his word. Believe it. Cherish it. Practice it. Let it be sweet to you, sweeter than honey. Experience its power by reflecting upon it and practicing it. Yes, live on those words of promise. Live on those words of encouragement. Obey those words of command. Take to heart those words of warning. Moreover, by them, so the psalmist says, as he extols the perfection, the power, the goodness of God's word, Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. Thank you, Lord, for those wholesome warnings. Thank you for the conviction that sometimes frightens me and stirs me up and reminds me of the calling to take this life seriously. Yes, believers will certainly do good at works. They will bear fruit. And believers are active in pursuing that goal to live out this union with Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, good works. They're accepted to God in Christ. They're produced through Christ. 
and they are rewarded in Christ. He who comes unto God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently uh, seek him. The Bible continuously uh, appeals to uh, a proper kind of self-interest, not a selfish, godless self-interest, but a proper kind of self-interest by people who ought to cherish the lives that God has given them, lives made in His image, made for His glory, lives that can never be happy, lives that can never be full apart from a relationship with God and true happiness in Him. And so to seek to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, these are not at odds with each other. They describe the purpose of our lives together. God rewards good works in this life. They may come in terms of material and physical ways. There are such promises. We have them in, in the book of Proverbs, for example, in the, in the third, in the third chapter. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. There are promises of God's protection. There are promises of God's comfort and care in times of sickness. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. Jesus promises yet more spiritual and richer rewards of grace. In John chapter 15, he promises answered prayer, for example. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Jesus promises uh, assurance when he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that by bearing fruit, you become disciples. But by bearing fruit, the reality of your discipleship becomes evident to others and to yourself. And your assurance also will be strengthened. Right? Remember, that's one of the purposes of good works. According to the Catechism, a few Lord's Days later on, why must we do good works? Also, that we might be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. Yeah, there's a correlation between living the Christian life and growing in assurance. Or how about the experience of Christ's love? In verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And again, that's not a program for self-righteousness or attaining the love of God. It's a matter of entering more deeply into the experiential reality of the love of God in Christ. It's like what Jesus said in the previous chapter. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What rich encouragements to seek to grow in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ because we love fellowship with Him. And we know that there's a correlation between our sincerity of walking before the face of the Lord and our enjoyment of His fellowship. He promises joy. These things I have spoken to you. What? Well, all that He said. 
that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. The point here, brothers and sisters, is that that holy living is happy living. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, right? It introduces the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not sit in the seat of scornful, does not stand in the way of uh, the wicked, but his delight is in the law of God. He meditates in his law. Blessed is the one who delights greatly in God's commandments. By your word, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It doesn't say for keeping them. In keeping them, because the ways of God are ways of pleasantness and peace. Isn't so much of our sanctification being convinced of that more and more? Not in general, but specifically when it comes to our battle with our sins. It's a matter of pursuing joy. It's a matter of glorifying God and entering more fully into the blessings of his free grace. Because these rewards, they magnify grace. That's what they do. They are grace upon grace. They don't lead, believe, lead believers away from the faith. It doesn't lead believers thinking, oh, I've been a good boy, therefore God is richly rewarding me. Those are not, that's not the thought process. Rather, we are astonished at God's goodness to us. Because we experience the blessings of being his child, knowing that we don't deserve any of it. You know that parents may reward their children in a gracious way, right? Dad lets his three-year-old participate in a little building project or uh, some work he's got going in the garage or mom lets uh, her little girl help out in some uh, food preparation enterprise or project or preparing for a, a, a get-together and she'll have the little one set the table and, and the little boy or girl takes great delight. And feels proud. And the reality is that mom kind of has to uh, clean up after her and kind of set things right and kind of fix things and kind of uh, redo some things. And uh, certainly that's the case with our best works. There's much imperfection about them. But our Father delights in us as we seek to serve and obey Him. Not because of the perfection of our, our works, but because of His grace evident in us. I guess that if there's a difference between the little child and his mommy and daddy, it's the fact that we know, don't we? We know. We're not puffed up and proud with our performance. We know that our Heavenly Father has to cover all the imperfections and stains that mar our best works. At least we know part of it. We know something of it. But we know it's all of grace. So every reward, every enjoyment that we have in this Christian life is of grace. And, and even on top of that, we, we, we dare to believe and we do believe that in the ages to come, he will show the exceeding riches of his grace to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. There will be that everlasting reward, not of merit, but of pure grace. These are things, brothers and sisters, to motivate us to love the Lord our God. I want to serve him with thankfulness and humility and praise for his glory. Amen.